just come before you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you and look at your word. We thank you for all the people that are here tonight. And we ask that you just guide and lead us as we look at your word. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 19. Starting at verse 1. When the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God gives you, and you succeed them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall separate three cities for you in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God gives you to possess it. You shall prepare you a way and divide the coast of your land, which the Lord your God gives you to inherit unto three parts, that every slayer may flee there thither. And the... And this is the case of the slayer, which shall flee thither, that he may live. Whoso killeth his neighbor ignorantly, who hates him not in time past, as when a man goes into the wood with his neighbor to hew wood, and his hand fetches a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree, and the head slips from the, from the heave, and lights upon his neighbor, and that he die, he shall flee into one of these cities and live. Lest the avenger of his blood pursue the slayer while his heart is hot, and overtake him because the way is long, and slay him, whereas he was not worthy of death, insomuch as he hated him not in the past. Wherefore I command you, saying, You shall separate three cities for you, and if the Lord your God enlarge your coast, as he has sworn unto your fathers, and give you all the land which he promised to give unto your fathers, if you keep, shall keep all the commandments to do them, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God, and to walk forever uh, walk ever in his ways, then shall you add three cities more in, your, in you besides these three, that innocent blood shall not be shed in your, in your land, which the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance, and so blood be upon you. So we're going to look at this. This is God's way of protecting somebody who accidentally kills another individual. Okay? In our day, we call it manslaughter. It's accidental, you didn't plan on it, it's just something that happened. And God makes provisions for that type of death. And we're going to look at this, and it says in verse 1, When the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the, the Lord your God gives you. I want to stop there, and I want to point out that it says, when. Okay? And I, I bring this out because it stood, it stood out to me in a very strong way. Moses isn't saying, if you conquer the land, if you get your land. He goes, when God gives you the land that he's promised you. And it's just one of these words that stuck out in my mind when I was reading this. That it's, not, it's not an if, it's not, it goes, when God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord has given you. And you succeed them and dwell in their cities, in their houses. Okay, so again, there's no ifs, there's no maybes. It goes, when God does this, and you are living in the land that God has given you. And I love the way he said this, and this isn't the only place he said it, when you dwell in their cities, in their houses. And there was another place back a while ago where we, we read where he says, you will be plowing fields and harvesting from, from uh, orchards that you did not plant. God basically says, you're going to have this land, and when you go in, you're not destroying it. And they're not going to destroy it before you take it. And this is something that is interesting, because when you go into battle, when you go into war, the land suffers almost as much, if not more, than the people do in most cases. And if you were fighting Russia in the early 
uh, the 1800s and the early 1900s, they, they loved to, as they retreated, burn everything out, you know, burn the entire land. So all you got was burnt territory with no crops, no trees, no, no buildings. And they called it scorched earth. And that's not been uncommon in, in battle. In days of uh, Babylon and even Rome, if they did not want to conquer an area and keep a military presence, they would salt the ground so that it wouldn't grow anything. They would just basically destroy it, say, okay, we don't want it, but we don't want you to be able to live here either. Sherman's march in the south. The south is still angry with Sherman with the damage that he did in the south as he, as he scorched earth to everything on, on his way through to Atlanta. Uh, so this is something that I just bring out. It says when you get this and when you get dwell there, you're going to have these cities, you're going to have these houses, and in other places it said you're going to have the orchards and, the, and, and these fields that you didn't, and, and wells and everything. They're coming into a pre-made ready to live in place and God is saying when you get all of this stuff and so this is the not an if not a maybe in verse 2 it says you shall separate three cities for you in the midst of your land which the Lord your God gives you to possess now if you recall there's already three cities that are separated out on the west side of the Jordan Okay, the Transjordan has three cities of refuge as well. And they're going to carve out three cities of refuge. In Leviticus, or excuse me, Numbers, we're told that these cities are going to be part of the city, 48 cities that are given to the Levites. So 72 cities that are given to the Levites. Okay, six of their cities are going to be cities of refuge. All right, does that make sense to where we're going on this? And remember, why do the Levites get cities and not land? Is because God chose them as his inheritance. So they're going to get cities scattered all through Israel, and they get the land directly around the city so they have a small area that they can plant, plant uh, vegetables and fruits and whatever and be able to raise you know, small herds of cattle, but they're not given large plots of land. I heard one of the pastors this last week talk about how the Levites didn't have anything and he didn't quite understand completely what the Levites were, were given because they were given cities with a small plot of land around them where they could make their, make their living. And that's how they made their living when Israel pulled away from supporting the temple and went into idolatry full-fledged and the Levites left the temple. They went back to their cities and they you know, farm their little personal plots around the, the cities and, and, and fed themselves because the people weren't doing their job in giving, honoring God. So, and he says, you're going to separate three cities. And I love this in verse 3. It doesn't, it doesn't read very well in the King James. It's hard to understand. You shall prepare you a way and divide the coast of your land, which the Lord your God gives you to inherit, into three parts that every slayer may flee thither. So part one of you shall prepare you a way. He's telling them you're going to make roads. Okay? If you have a newer Bible, a lot of the newer Bibles say it very plain. You will make roads. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's what it means. You know, this is a old English. They, a way was a road. Okay? It's not necessarily what we would think of as a road. 
It was usually goat pads, <laughs> goat pads animal pads, maybe a, a little two-rutted lane. But, and maybe a road is a little too ambitious for us to think of, but it was a way that they could get from wherever they were at to these cities. All right, so God's saying basically what we would say, if you want to make your city successful, you had to be connected to a road, a railroad, a, a, a river, uh, you know, some way that you connected your town to the rest of the world. And so he's saying these cities of refuge have to have roads leading to them so that the people could move quickly. And we're going to get into that. We, we, we read it already, but we'll look into this. Why do they need to be able to move quickly? Because there's a relative of the dead person trying to kill them. So they needed to be, have a quick way to get to this city. And uh, so they're to create, they're to, to build these roads, to divide the coast of their lands, which the Lord gives you into three parts. So they were to divide these cities. All the cities were not supposed to be in Judah, in, in Judah and Benjamin in the south. They had to be scattered throughout the land so that they were easy, they, that you had some place within a day or two's journey to get to. All right, you didn't put them all up in Dan and say, okay, guys, Benjamin, you have an, you have an accident down there. You, you're going to have to go you know, 500, 600 miles to get to this city of refuge. No, he, there, was a, there would be, you know, he was saying, put a city down somewhere in the, in the south, somewhere in the, in the north, and in the middle. Divide that land and make roads to these places. This is God preparing for the graciousness of saying death was not worthy in this case. All right? And before, remember, we just got done reading a, a couple weeks ago that if you, by man's, if man, uh, if a man's life is, blood was shed by man, then that man needed to die. God's saying here, if it's an accidental death, there's no malice involved, <laughs> that person doesn't deserve death. And he's, given, he's going to give them this chance. He's saying, here's your, here's your plan. I'm giving you a plan to be able to show mercy and grace. Verse 4. And this is the case of the slayer which shall flee thither that he may live. Whoso kills his neighbor ignorantly who hated him not in times past. And this ignorantly is not quite a good one, but it's more like has no intent. You know, this is, and the, the example that he goes into, they go out in the woods and they're, shot, they're chopping down a tree and all of a sudden the axe head flies off the handle of the, of the axe and embeds itself in the guy's head and he falls dead. They were friends, they liked each other. And there was no reason for it. No intent. You weren't angry with the guy. You've never been angry. You know, not, not angry enough to, to kill over. And so he says, and whom you have not hated in times past. You have no malice against them. These are two places that had to be met. You, it was an accident. And it wasn't somebody that you wanted to see hurt. So now you were really in trouble if you didn't meet both these criteria because if it was somebody that you had problems with that you really would have enjoyed seeing hurt and then you have an accident, then you have that same thing we would say, well, was it really an accident? And God's saying it had to fit both those criteria, an accident and no malice involved in it. And then it says at the end of verse 5, if he flee, if, he, if this happens, he, he was out in the accident, it kills, he shall flee to one of these cities and live. Now, in this fleeing, he had to be able to get to the city before 
the avenger of the family caught up with him. So hopefully he was faster than whoever was chasing him. <laughs> and he had to, once he got to the city, be able to prove that he was innocent, you know, that it wasn't a planned event. The other thing in this chapter doesn't really get into, he had to live in the city of refuge until the high priest died. All right, so this is a pretty big deal. Uh, he didn't know how long he was going to live in that city when he ran to the city. Because that city, especially if it was a young high priest, yeah. a newly installed high priest, he might live his entire life in the city of refuge. Now, if he had a really old high priest who was ready to retire, it might be, he might only spend two or three days there. You didn't know. But, but he lived there until the high priest was passed away. So, but it was his place of safety. And we look at this. Why does God put these in there? There's the practical side of them, but the spiritual side of this is that we as, as sinners are worthy of death. We run into a city of refuge who is Jesus, our refuge. And he's also our high priest, so he's not going to die, and we're going to rest forever in the city of refuge. So this is kind of an interesting picture. It's got a spiritual picture as well as a physical picture involved with this. Jesus, the high priest, and God is our rest, and Jesus is our rest. We have entered into rest. This is why for us as Christians, we worship God every day, and we are in a Sabbath every day because we are in faith rest in Christ. We are already at rest, waiting to go into our complete rest in heaven for eternity. But we are at rest already. We are supposed to be resting with God every single day and worshiping Him because we are at rest. We are at peace. We're not striving to get something. The Jews were always striving to get their righteousness, to get enough sacrifices done so that they would have their sins covered. Jesus came and we get to rest in His forgiveness. And this is where we need to be. We need to be resting. Many of us deal with uh, fears and worries and struggles and, and, and uh, troubles. And God is going to be trying to tell you, rest. We rest in his love. We rest in his peace. We rest in the confidence that he's in charge. This is why it's so important for us to get hold of the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith is, and Adrian Rogers said this yesterday on the radio, yesterday morning on the radio, faith is trusting in God's word. So the more we fill our minds with his word, the more we build our faith because we are trusting in his word. And the more we learn to trust in his word, the more we are resting in Christ. And life becomes pretty easy when you're resting in Christ. It's a fun place to be, to rest, and just let him be in control, not striving, not worrying about what am I doing next? What, what am I going to do to solve this problem? What am I going to do to solve this problem? We've been talking about it a lot in the Psalms class. God says he's our defense. He's our protector. He's our shelter. He's our fortress. He wants us to hide in him. Now, if you are hiding in a shelter, how much stress do you have to do about worrying where you're going the next moment? You don't have a whole lot of worry, do you? Because you're inside the shelter. The shelter's not going anywhere. 
Now, in our case, God goes all over the place and we're inside him. And he is our shelter. We need to learn to just rest in that refuge. Satan cannot touch us. He cannot claim our life because we are Christians. We are in Christ. We are at rest and ready to, and we're just basically waiting to go to heaven. Does that mean we do nothing? Well, obviously we don't. We're going to do all kinds of things. But you know, the good thing about that is we just look around and say, God, what is it you want me to do? And don't stress out about it. I point this out. Jesus, all the time, what did he start his days out in, according to the scriptures? He started each of his days in prayer. And it says, early in the morning, and the word indicates long before the sun's coming up, Jesus was in prayer with the Father. And then he would start ministering, basically to whoever showed up. He's on his way to help, uh, heal Jairus' uh, daughter, who turns out to be a resurrection. And who stops him in the middle of that way? The, the woman with the issue of the blood who touches him. He's on his way one place, and he, says, Who's, and he stops and says, who touched me? And heals that woman. He's on his way another time someplace, and he heals the, the, the lepers. He oftentimes would stop what he was doing and do something else because it was what God put in his path, what the Father put in his path. If you're like me, you tend to get so focused on what it is you wanted to get done that you walk past many things that probably needed to be done. I know that I have walked past things that needed to be done because I realized it hours later that I walked past things that needed to be done. We need sometimes just to slow down and look what appointments, what divine appointments has God put in our path and take advantage of them. Because they're always there. They're always there if we just stop for a moment and look. The individual that comes across our path and, say, and we get that opportunity just to talk to for a few minutes. Just to share, share a kind word. Maybe just a, you know, God loves you. Maybe it's just, you know, hey, how are you doing? reach out to him and, and touch him just a little bit. God's got divine appointments all around us all the time. We need to just stop with our agendas and look around. And so we see here that uh, they, they have this place where they can go. There's to give three cities on the new land. And remember, I've already said there's three cities in the in the Transjordan, on the east side of the Jordan. And then it says in verse 8, And if the Lord your God enlarge your coasts, as he has sworn to your fathers and give you all the land that he had promised to give to your fathers, if you shall keep all the commandments to do them, which I commanded you this day, to love the Lord your God and to walk ever in his ways, then you shall add three more cities beside these three. All right, so here he's saying... You've got three cities with roads equally distanced in there. And then I, in this part, and if the Lord your God enlarge your coast as he swore to your fathers. And this is going back to that conditional ideas that keep coming up in, in the writing. If they obey, they're going to be blessed. Now, he also understands that this land is promised to them. Okay. If, you shall, uh, if the Lord your God shall enlarge your coast as he swore to your fathers. Which fathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They all got the same promise 
over and over. It's called the Abrahamic Covenant, and that's the covenant that says that uh, he's going to make you a great nation, and everywhere your foot, st foot is uh, walked on, you're going to have that land. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be, be cursed. And by, by your seed, all nations shall be blessed. Think about all the land that Abraham walked on. Started up in Ur of Chaldees, if you really want to be, be, take it to literally, and he walks up the length of the Jordan to Haran. Then he comes down all that Transjordan area that is, is not Israel's today, all over the Promised Land, all the way into Egypt, and God says, all of this land is yours. In their history, there's only been two times that Israel, or two kings that they've ever had all their land. And that was David and Solomon. That's the only time they've had most of their land. They didn't even have all of it because they, they, they didn't have the Egypt. The only time they will have the, all this land, it will be in the millennial kingdom when Jesus rules and they will have everything. Everything will be Israel because God will rule from Israel and he'll rule all the world. Uh-huh. Okay, did I skip six? No, the Avengers of, of the Blood were the family. Immediate family. Okay. Usually it would be one of their sons or the father, if it was the sons that died. Uh, and it's just it's all all of this stuff is a repeat of Leviticus and Numbers. Uh, where God put all of this stuff in and uh, I'm just not going back to review every detail of it. But yes, when somebody, was, when somebody was killed, the person who was supposed to go after them would normally be either the father or the eldest son that was left of that person then down a whole street. street. But basically anybody in his family could go after him and say that we're avenging him. Okay. It couldn't just be the the best friend uh, the best friend of him that could that would go out and avenge him. It, yeah, it wasn't vigilante. This was family. This was family paying back for family. And uh, so yes, the avenger would pursue them. And I love the way while his heart is hot. Okay, the the avengers enraged. The avengers raid enraged, and they're going to be a little more motivated to. Uh, to chase after you. And we see them in the old westerns every once in a while. Somebody's chasing after the person who uh, killed their family or killed a member of their family. And they're, you know, you see their horse racing full, full bore and the other guy's kind of just trotting along, you know, thinking he's, thinking he's okay. Uh, that's, that's exactly what it's saying here. This guy's hot. He's wanting to get you and, and you need to get to that city before he gets, catches up with you. And then it says, because, because if the way was long, if you, if you didn't, didn't uh, separate these uh, cities well, then it would be way too long for them to get to a place where they could be protected. And that's a pretty important thing if you're running for your life. You don't want to run hundreds and hundreds of miles. You needed to be able to get there within a day or two. Otherwise, you're going to get caught. You, just, you will get caught. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. And... Uh, so it says these three cities, and he says, if you keep God's word. Remember, since Exodus, there's been a lot of conditional places. We're going to the promised land. It's yours. 
but you need to obey these rules. And if you think back all the way back to Sinai, they go, we will do all that the Lord tells us. And they said this even before they knew what God was going to tell them. God could have told them they needed to stand on their head for 30 days at a time, and, and they'd already promised to do this. You know, uh, They had no idea what God was going to tell them to do, and they're going, yeah, well, yeah, he cut us out of Egypt. We'll do anything he tells us to do. But even by Sinai, they had already been grumbling multiple times. They grumbled at, they grumbled at uh, the Red Sea. They grumbled at, at, uh, at Mira, where they, where, they water, where they couldn't find water. They grumbled, they'd been grumbling a lot even before they get to Sinai. And then they have the audacity to, to say, whatever God tells us to do, we're going to do. They've already been disobedient. And God says, if you can keep my word, you're going to be able to keep your land. If you can keep my word, I'm going to bless you. Now, God has been very gracious and for them all through this. He's been very loving. He's been very kind. He's been very gracious. He never gave them all of what they deserved. Otherwise, he would have done just what he told Moses he was going to do, destroyed them all and started with Moses because God got so tired of them. And yet... Here, they are, here he's saying, if you do this, you're going to have all your land. When you get your land, add three more cities of refuge. Now, they're going to add three more cities of refuge anyway before long. But the whole idea was this shows God's conditional. God does the same thing with us to a degree. He goes, if you accept my son, then you are going to be blessed. And the good news for us is that is as far as our condition goes. We are saved if we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and truly accept and believe. Now, this gets you into the course of, you know, what is belief, what is, what is truth. But especially in Greek, belief means to put my full trust in. Not just say, I believe. You know, I believe that so-and-so existed. I, I've, never, I've never seen him, but I believe the letter, you know, the articles I've written and things. So I believe they existed. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I put my trust in that person. We need to believe in a way that we put our whole trust in Jesus. And this is where salvation really comes from. God, I am going to trust you. This is why the more we get into this word and the more we believe it, we put our trust in it, the more it becomes real. The more it becomes real, the more it changes my life and impacts my life because I start saying it is true. It is trustworthy, and I'm going to put all my trust on it. The idea of people when they first use crutches, if you've ever used crutches, the first time you use them, it's a little nerve-wracking trying to say, am I going to put all my weight on these? And eventually you get to where you trust them, and, and, and you go along and you learn to use them right so you don't get all the bruises under your arm and everything for using them incorrectly. And you, know, you get used to it. We have a place where we say, I've got this and I'm going to put my trust in it. That's what faith is, putting my trust in it. Well, I've told you all, when I look at these uh, catering chairs, the little white ones with legs that are about a quarter inch uh, thick, I have learned over the years that not, I do not sit in them. I have no faith, no trust in the, those chairs holding me up. Now, now that I've lost 60 pounds, I might be willing to try one again, but I doubt it. I've had enough of them fall, fall underneath me that I don't trust those chairs. Okay? I have no faith that they work. 
candid camera but this is what it is means to have faith. You really can't say you have faith until you put your trust in what you say you have faith in. If you say you have faith in Jesus and that he is your defense, but you never let him be your defense, you really have no faith in him as your defense because you're not willing to put your trust in him. This is why when he says, cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you, and you don't cast your cares on him, you're not, you're what you're basically saying, God, I don't trust that you care enough for me to take my cares for me. And this is why we have to be very careful about this. God is going to teach us things, and then he's going to put us in places that say, are you going to walk in faith in this area? Are you going to trust me in this area that I am true? And oftentimes, myself included, we basically say, no, God, I think you're a liar. I don't trust you in this area. Now, we may not be that blunt. We might not say it, but our actions are saying it quite often, aren't they? If I don't do what he has taught me to do, I'm basically saying, God, I don't believe that you are true in this area. I believe you're lying to me in this area. I'm trying to shock us into what, we're, what we do. We wouldn't come out and verbalize it saying, God, I think you're a liar. No. We would never say that, but our actions, and the statement is, actions speak louder than words. Our actions say, God, you're a liar. I don't trust you in this area. We need to be praying that we can make our actions match what we're, what we're studying and what we're learning and ask God to give us help in that area because most of the time it goes against our human nature which of course makes it hard to do because everything in our brain is telling us don't do it, it's foolishness can't do this and our spirit is saying yes God is true, he's going to do it this is why it says in the scriptures the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that perish even we as Christians oftentimes treat things that God teaches us as foolishness because our brain is telling us it is, it's foolish. Because our flesh needs to be perished. It needs to be crucified. And our brain's telling, them, telling us, don't do that. Don't give your tithe. Don't surrender to God. Don't tell the truth in this area. Don't, don't, don't speak up and give this person the gospel. Our flesh is always telling us all these things and the Spirit's saying, trust God, trust God, trust God, trust God. Sometimes we trust Him, sometimes we don't. The important thing is that we learn to trust Him, following His steps. And the whole reason for God's placing of these cities of refuge in verse 10, that innocent blood shall not be shed in the land. God is very much concerned with innocence not being harmed. The innocent, the, the person who had an accidental uh, slain, the widow, the orphans, anybody who is basically too weak to take care of themselves, God is saying he cares about them. All through these is how he takes care of them. In this case, he's saying, I don't want innocent people slain. And remember what he has said, the reason they're coming into the promised land and, and bringing out all of these uh, nations that are there is because of the land has been polluted. They have shed innocent blood. They have committed uh, uh, fornications and abominations. 
with their with their gods. They have so so much sexual perversion that there's no that they don't even have anything that's perversion to them. And we're talking anything that is perversion to them. Okay? This is how bad the land is, and God said, you're going in it, and when you go in it, it's going to be sanctified, and I do not want innocent blood, innocent people hurt. All right? This is something that God is very serious about. Jesus said that if you were to harm a child, spiritually especially, that you would be better off with a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. That's a pretty severe punishment. Go put a ton rock on your, around your neck and go jump, you know, be tossed into the sea. You know, you're not getting up out of that. So this is the seriousness that God has in protecting the innocent. And he keeps this up all through the scriptures. The widows, the poor, were given food by, from the fields because they were told, do not go back and glean the fields. If it falls down after, after you, let the poor go and get it. Matter of fact, God says, don't even touch the corners of your field. Now, I'm sure the, the, the stingy ones cut those corners as tight as they probably could. The more generous left a pretty decent size corner for the, for the poor. But as long as they left a corner, they were being, <laughs> being true. I mean, like I said, there's probably some of them that left them maybe a foot. And there was probably many, you know, some, you know, some of the more righteous and generous were leaving them 10, 15 feet of grain to go harvest. But God took care of the poor. Not the way the world takes care of them, saying, we're just going to give you stuff so you'll get lazier. God says, we're going to provide for you, but you're going to work for it. You're going to get up. You're going to do something for what you're going to get. And this is something that God does. He encourages work and not sloth, but yet he says, provide. Make sure that they're taken care of. He provides this way that if somebody gets hurt, they have a way to run for safety and uh, verse 11 but if any man hate his neighbor and lie in wait for him and rise up against him and smites him mortally that he flee that he die and flees into one of these cities then the elders of the city shall send and fetch him thence and deliver him unto the hand of the avenger of the blood that he may die they thine eye shall have no pity on him but you shall Put away him that is in. Uh, put away innocent blood from Israel, that it may do well, go well with you. So here we have the situation where somebody has actually killed somebody on purpose, and then runs to the city of refuge. Okay, this verse says that the elder shall send for him. There's a lot more to this. Back in, in again Leviticus and Numbers, we read. What you would end up having to do, the elders of the city that he ran from and the avenger of the blood would go to the city of refuge and they would say he does not deserve to be here and there would be a trial basically before the judges of that town which would also be the Levi, who would be the Levites at, at the time it started. They would present the case saying, well, we know that this says the axe head flew off on accident but you know, he and my... He and my, uh, the dead person had lots of arguments and they were always fighting and they hated each other and they were always doing wrong to one another. And at that time, the person would probably be handed over to them to say, okay, Avenger, uh, you know, take him back to your city. And then when they took him back to the city, he would be stoned. And the first person who would throw the stone in any, in any case was the harmed party. In this case, the man, the, the individual's, family would be the first ones to throw the 
the stones. Uh, if there was a case of adultery, the husband or wife that was the innocent partner would be the one that would throw the first stone to, in the, in the uh, execution of that individual. So this is, it makes it sound so simple here, but there was a whole section in, in numbers about how this is done. They were to go and they were to hold a case, uh, basically a trial, where we would look at it the same way. And they would go, here's, here's, here's our evidence. You know, they hated each other. Here's, here's the individuals that can testify to their, their hatred. And if they purposely did it, again, the case would have to begin. And if, they did, if he was found guilty, he'd be delivered to the elders of that town. Again, carry him back to their, back to their town and he would be executed. And again, it says, your eye shall have no pity on him but you shall have put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel that it may go well with you. This is something that we want to bring out. God is all for individuals forgiving other people. Okay? Note who it is that was to have no pity in this situation was the elders, the leaders of the town, the ones, the government Okay, let's take it even further. The government was not to take pity if it was something that was some that deserved punishment. The government was to give out the punishment. This is why when we talk about all through the Old Testament, God is very much on capital punishment. But it was always done by the government or the elders of the the place. Now the Avengers of the blood, they were to be the ones that threw the first stone and they were the ones to, to initiate, initiate the actual first giving, but it was the government who was to do it. Because people in this day will go, well, God says thou shalt not kill. And then they'll go, well, that tells you that you cannot have capital punishment. Well, number of problems that we've had with this, we've talked about that when we've talked about Exodus and Deuteronomy and the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill should be translated, thou shalt not murder. And there's a difference between murder and kill. All murdering is killing, but not all killing is murder. Okay? Because there are different things. And God's capital punishment for punishment of people is not murder. It is the justice that God demands. If you go to war for a righteous reason, which not all wars have been righteous, uh, then that is not a murder. It is doing the defense of your, your nation. So we have this very technical difference between it and God is all through here. He's all, all about capital punishment. And he says the capital punishment works and capital punishment does work if it's done right. If you do it the way our country does it and you've got 30 years separation between the time of your crime and the, and the execution, it's losing its uh, value. Now, you probably don't want it to be commit the crime and get punished the next day because you want time to get a good defense. And that was the whole purpose here. The, the, the defense was being presented. And the time you took to get there and, and back would have given you time. So we look at this and says, God wants to protect the innocent. The government's job is to protect the innocent. And this is not always what they do, unfortunately. But that is what their job is to do, protect the innocent. And 
God's whole purpose is protection of the innocent. We need to protect innocents. When this is why the church has been designed to help the poor over the years. Because the poor, some people are poor because they cannot help it. Others are poor because they've made very bad decisions in their life. And in the day when the church was responsible for helping the poor, the church could make decisions. They go, okay, you're, you're having trouble harvesting your fields because you fell off the ladder at your barn and, and broke, broke both legs and can't go out and harvest your fields. Okay, we're going we're gonna to mobilize the town and the church to go out and, and, and uh, harvest your fields. Uh, oh, you, you're going out drinking every night and falling down flat on your face and sleeping until 1 o'clock and you want us to harvest your fields. No, you, you're deserve, you don't deserve the help. Okay, this is the one problem we have when government tries to help the poor because they're far away and they just try to help. They make rules, they have good intentions, and they just make rules that blanket, oh, you're, you're broke, you can't harvest your fields, okay, we'll harvest, we'll harvest them for you, using the same example that the church, you know. But, you know, they're not, they're not designating why can't you go harvest your field. And this is something that is very important. God is looking to protect the innocent, but he says, if you're slothful, you're, you're not innocent. If you're, if you're a drunkard, you're not innocent. If you're committing all these sins and, and, and re reaping rewards for it, you're not innocent. He goes, you're a widow, you're innocent, you need to be protected. You're an orphan, you really need to be protected. You have no family to take care of you. And God says, take care of them. These are the things that God says, take care of the innocent. And... This is why he's doing all these different rules that are involved. And he says, if they run, if they run and they aren't innocent, you're going to hold the court case. Basically, you hold a court case. And that, again, back in Numbers and, and, and Leviticus, that we read all the rules for that. All right, verse 14. You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which they of old time have set in your inheritance, which you shall inherit in the land of the Lord your God gives you to possess. This is kind of an interesting thing, removing landmarks. Uh, and these landmarks are usually piles of stone that mark the corners of your land. Or it could be a tree or whatever. If, if you've ever read any of the old maps and, 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 and deeds, you know, you're, it's, it would say something like the line, your land goes to the old oak tree in the northwest corner, follows the stream, the stream uh, down there. So if the path of the stream changed, you would have a problem with your land uh, down to the, to the pile of rocks that, 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 that you put up there and comes back to the other pile of rocks. Okay. Uh, so God is saying because of these types of designations and we're going to see this when we get to Joshua we're going to see just that the land goes to this mountain to this along this river down to this mountain uh, that is the landmarks that they get in, in for the for the tribes now you can't move the mountain or at least you couldn't in their day you might be able to in our day <laughs> but uh, he's saying don't move the landmarks don't try to move the landmark you know, the, the pile of rocks three feet your, you know, into his property to take more, take more of their property. Why does God say that? Because, again, don't harm the innocent. Because who's the one that's going to get in that? Is the widow who's not out there farming, their, you know, farming every part of their land and finds out that their neighbors claimed you know, 20 feet of their land you know, when, they, when their son or daughter gets married and they go to, go to farm the land and all of a sudden they've lost land. 
No, it's nothing, nothing new under the sun. We, we keep saying the same thing. Nothing new under the sun. And yet God, and God is, this isn't the only place he's done this, where he said this. But, you know, we take also from this, we need to put landmarks in our own life. When God does something special, now we've mentioned this many times, if God has done something special in your life that's really neat or really good, you learn something, write it down. Make it special. Remember it. What did God do for the children of Israel that helped them become, stay a nation for, the, for their entirety? He gave them the Passover with the story attached to it of how God delivered them from Egypt. And they, it was a landmark for them. Every time they ate Passover, they remembered the deliverance from Egypt. Every time they would end up doing these various ceremonies, it had a story attached to it. Tabernacles is one of those that has a story attached to it. It commemorates the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and God providing for them. And when they crossed the River Jordan to enter into the Promised Land, said God said, "Build this great, you know, get each tribe take a big rock out of the out of the river and put it all in a big stack." And then what was the reason for it? And when your children see this and ask, "What is that pile of rocks?" you will be able to tell them about how God brought you into the promised land. Very important for us to have these marks and to rehearse them to ourselves mm -hmm. and to our family. So our family learns the, the, the graciousness and protection of God and probably even our extended family in the church because it helps build their faith when we say, look what God has done for me. And I've said this many times. It's one thing to read the Bible and say God used to do things, you know, two to 4,000 years ago. Now, and then it's another thing to read a biography and say, oh, yeah, God did things a couple hundred years ago. But, you know, when you're looking at what God has done for you and what he's done for friends that you know, people that you know, that has a greater impact than any of the other, any of the other stories because they're just stories. Yes, I believe them. Yes, they're sure they're true. But isn't it true that when you've got some fellow Christians saying, you know, look what God has done this week. Look, he's provided this thing, this for me. Doesn't that have just that little more impact? This is somebody you know telling you the story about how God helped them. Yeah, they made a pillow. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't just taking little tiny things. They were taking rock. But God is wanting to protect his, his people. Verse 15. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, in any sin that he sins, at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. If a false witness rise up against a man to testify against him, then both the, man, uh, both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priest and the judges, which shall be in those days. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the witness be a false witness and has testified falsely against his brother... Then you shall do unto him as he thought to have done unto his brother, so shall you put away evil from among you. And those which remain shall hear and fear, and shall henceforth commit no more such, any such evil among you. And your eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So God is going to deal with, we talked about the trials. First off, one witness is not enough to convict somebody. Now, the problem we have in our jury's system is 
one witness can get somebody convicted. Okay, it shouldn't be because one-on-one -on -one, there's all kinds of things that need to be looked at. You know, there could be malice there. There could be a bot witness, whatever. And that's why God said it has to be at the mouth of two to three witnesses. And again, this is the summary. He's already determined that these witnesses must agree in their substance. Not be word for word because then you have collusion. But they must agree and be correct in their substance. Same thing we have in our day. If you have two or three witnesses, you expect them to give you the, basically the same story. But if they're word for word, mm -hmm. then you go, uh, there's something fishy about this story because no two people are going to give you the same exact details with no deviation. Okay, police understand that when they're interviewing people on the street. The courts understand that. Not all juries understand that, but the judges and, and the lawyers really understand that. You know, if they get two people on the stand to tell you pretty much exactly the same story, then there's something wrong with their stories. It's collaborated. It's, you know, they, they, it, is no, it is no longer valid. And here's what God's saying. You have to have at least two or three witnesses to convict, especially in a capital crime. Okay, any crime, but especially a capital crime. Now, and then he knows that what's going to happen is the collusion of witnesses or somebody who's just giving false testimony, which we call perjury, somebody telling lies and convicting somebody. And he says, if there's a false witness rises up and testifies, then the false witness and the person who's being testified against will stand before the judges and they will be, and I, and I love the way that, diligent inquisition. <laughs> this means they are to be questioned and questioned hard. No soft questioning at this point. One of them's guilty and they're going to find out which one's guilty. In our justice system, if somebody commits perjury, I don't really know what, I was going to look that up. I don't remember, I don't know what it is, but it's really not that big a deal. You, you end up going to jail for a short period of time or something or get fined, something like that. In God's punishment, if you committed perjury, whatever the penalty was for the person you committed the perjury against was yours. Wow. Okay, so if it's a capital crime and you committed perjury, you would be killed. If it was a theft crime, if you were perjuring yourself in a theft crime, then you would be the one that would be guilty of paying back. Yeah. It probably would be very wise to go back to that, to, to this rule. You're, 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 not going to, you're not going to give false testimony if you're going to, if you get caught, the penalty is to, to do their time. God did it because if you're going to try to get that person killed on a capital crime, then, then you need to face the same... And then it says in verse 19, Then shall you do unto them as they would have thought to have done unto his brethren, so shall you put evil away from your land. So again, the idea is, if they're going to come forward and lie, they would end up getting the same punishment, or get the punishment that would have gone to the other person on that. And that is really a good place, because that's going to prevent a lot of false witnesses. Because if it's going to fall back on the, on the witness completely, they're going to think twice about lying because they might get caught. This is something that 
probably should be done in our day. I agree, it probably should be done in our day. It would be a great way to stop things. God's whole purpose was to get rid of evil. God says they need to be true witnesses. And this is something God is very serious about. He was everything about being protection of the innocent. And this is why in America, especially, we have this idea that in the early part of our country that we would rather let nine guilty people go than to convict one innocent person because that was the what it is they didn't they wanted they believed what god said you protect the innocent if you cannot com, uh, convict them completely honestly they would rather have them be freed and we've been getting away from that that system for quite a while in our judicial system Verse 20, and those which remain shall hear in fear and shall commit no more any such evil among you. The whole purpose of the harshness of the penalties were to keep people from being disobedient. And we've seen this over our time as as we get more and more paying attention to the quote-unquote bad crimes. We, We allow a lot of little stuff to go away and then people are ending up having to fight bigger and bigger battles every time they turn around. And if you've ever raised kids, and most of us have, if you let your kids get away with little stuff, they keep moving till they finally hit whatever point it is that you won't let them cross. If you stop them from doing the little stuff, you pretty much don't have to deal with the big stuff. If you keep your kids from lying and, and harming one another early on, you don't end up fighting the really big battles that are going to get them into lots of trouble. I've seen it happen even in businesses. There, we've all seen bosses, that they keep a tight, tight rein on what people do, and it's very productive as long as they're not overbearing. And then you get these other bosses that are just, you know, anything goes almost, you know, you know short of murder and theft, you can do almost anything you want. Show up to work whenever you want, go home whenever you want. Uh, you know, don't do anything all day long and they don't say anything to you and nothing gets done. They're not helping anything. And people, people have this tendency. They will go to the point at which people will stop them from going any further. And God's rules were very strict. You're to keep them very strong, very strict, and that way you keep evil out of the mix. Does that mean nobody was going to do wrong? No, there's always going to be somebody who's just going to say, I don't care, I'm going to test the, test the limits and do wrong. Why do we put locks on cars and locks on doors? It's not to keep the criminals out. Okay? Criminals can get into anything they want to get into. Locks keep honest people honest. It takes the, the quick act of, oh, there's... $300 sitting out there in the open. No, it's in the cash register in a locked drawer. You know, if somebody really wants it, they're going to get it. But the opportunity for the individual because it's locked away is not there and it keeps honest people from being tempted. And God's saying the same thing. I'm going to keep the honest people. I'm going to keep evil out by having these rules in place. Does that mean that others that there aren't going to be people who disobey it? No, there's always going to be people who are disobedient. The flesh overcomes them. But God is saying, I want to keep things as simple as possible. I want to keep as many innocent people protected as possible. And this is very true. You don't, you don't give people an opportunity. And then the last verse in this chapter. 
And your eyes shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. God is saying, from a disciplined point of view, from the government side of things, it is to be just punishment, but it is to be punishment, and you're not to let it go just because you don't want to punish. And I've shared with this, you know, my dad had a saying when he was, when I was growing up, when it was time for a spanking, this is going to hurt you more than it hurts me. And I can tell you when I was a kid, I was going, yeah, right. I, I'm the one that's going to be with, have the sore bottom that can't sit down and it's hurting you. No, I don't think so. First time I had to spank one of my kids, I understood what he had said. It was going to hurt me to spank that child because I did not want to inflict pain. Now I knew that it was needed. I knew that it was going to help them live correctly from that point on, but I knew also that it was going to hurt me. And if I ever hear parents say, well, nope, doesn't, doesn't hurt me a bit, then my advice to them is you better not spank your kid. If it doesn't hurt you emotionally to have to inflict pain on your child, you better not be inflicting pain on your child because that's not going to become discipline. That becomes anything but discipline. God, when he disciplines us, does not take pleasure in the discipline, but he wants to make sure that we understand that when you do wrong, there is pain associated with, with it so that you don't continue doing wrong. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to come before you and just see how you care for the weak, you care for the innocent, and you put in rules for their protection. And Lord, we ask that you help us to always look at helping the innocent and being very honest and careful about that. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen.